Hi, and thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight we speak to a Canadian world champion magician about what's been called the Olympus of Magic, coming to Canada and North America for the very first time. We speak to Beachcombers actor Jackson Davies about the iconic Canadian show and the legacy of his co-star and friend Pat John, who passed away earlier this month. John played Jesse Jim on the show for 19 years. We learn how researchers in Australia discovered that the world's biggest fish, the whale shark, is also the world's largest omnivore, and how a better understanding of the gentle giant's eating habits may help us better protect the species. But first, confirmed cases of monkeypox continue to spread at an ever faster rate, prompting public health officials here and abroad to step up efforts to contain it. Are we doing enough? We begin tonight, though, with reports from the U.S. that they may soon declare monkeypox a public health emergency, with confirmed case in that country approaching 5,000. Today, the mayor of San Francisco announced a legal state of emergency over the growing number of monkeypox cases there. You may have heard yesterday, Canada's chief public health officer, Dr. Theresa Tam, said they are working closely with international, provincial, and territorial partners to contain and control the spread of monkeypox here. The World Health Organization has already declared the multi-country outbreak a public health emergency. Tam says it's clear this deserves an urgent global response with over 16,000 cases confirmed in 75 countries and territories, along with 745 confirmed cases in Canada alone. Now, the viral disease, often presenting as a flu-like infection with a rash, spreads through close personal contact with those who have a symptomatic case. Dr. Tam says over 99% of the cases involve people who identify as male and the majority of reported same-sex sexual contact, although she cautions the virus can spread to anyone through close contact with an infected person or contaminated items. She says the focus is on raising awareness and addressing barriers to immunization. Montreal Public Health Director Dr. Milan Dure says vaccination, though, is perhaps the best way to control the monkeypox outbreak that behavior change alone won't do. All right, so to clear this all up, joining me now is Jason Tetro, author and host of the Super Awesome Science Show. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Oh, it's a pleasure to be joining you. It really does feel like uh, there's been a sudden change of tone when it comes to monkeypox over the past a little while. We heard it uh, yesterday from Teresa Tam. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's behind the sudden surge in concern? Spillover. That's basically what's happening. If you look in the United States, the reason that they've created a a, a public health emergency is because it's now starting to show up in communities outside of what we were essentially saying was men having sex with men. We're starting to see women who are now getting it. We're seeing children who are now getting it. So what's happening is that it's coming out from that particular community and it's starting to spread into homes and households and other areas. And when that happens, um, just like we would see with something like measles or mumps, if people are not vaccinated or people don't have protection against it, it's just going to start spreading like wildfire. And just to give you an idea, um, if people are vaccinated against um, you know, measles, mumps, whatever it is, the potential for transmission is close to zero. But if they don't, then that number increases to anywhere from about um, two to five. And that means that one individual could potentially infect anywhere from two to five other people. And now that it's going into the communities, we all of a sudden have something that's no longer a stigmatization issue. It's a global health issue. Yeah, the situation, I guess, really continues to evolve. Do we have a clear understanding of how it's spreading at this point? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's the same thing as mumps and measles. It's it's basically close contact with uh, another individual because all of these viruses... Um, including SARS-CoV-2, just so you know, happen to be respiratory when it comes to getting inside of our bodies. So it has to come into our mouths or our nose, and then it'll eventually start spreading within our bodies. Now, depending on what kind of virus it is, you're going to have different types of symptoms. So, you know, with the mumps, you get the the, the chipmunk uh, cheeks and that. With something like measles, you get the spots. And now with monkeypox, you're going to have these um, exanthems or, or these essential pustules that take about a, about a month to, uh, to disappear. I guess what I understand part of the problem, though, is that people can remain relatively asymptomatic for quite some time. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, when we look at something like a monkeypox, you're looking at somewhere between 8 and 17 days as an incubation period. Now, of course, when you have that incubation period, it's not really something that you need to be concerned about. However, the minute that you start to see some of those spots on on the body, then you become very, very contagious. And the I guess the hard part for people to understand is that even as the lesions scab over, 
there's still active virus in there. So quite honestly, if you haven't isolated yourself once these spots arrive until they disappear, you have all of a sudden contributed to the potential spread of this particular virus. Uh, Jason, we did see a, a change, I think, in the public messaging, at least around containment to some extent. I know yeah. the WHO has said that, you know, the threat to the general population is still relatively low. Uh, there's mm-hmm. clearly the public messaging is targeting certain groups that have been where the, where it's it's begun. Obviously, yeah. anyone who lived through the 80s remembers the stigma around AIDS and HIV knows the dangers of that. But clearly, public health officials have made a decision that that they need to get that message out there. What do you think was behind that sort of shift in messaging? I think what's happened is that when you look back at where this came from um, in, in Africa, it was really within that uh, community. And it started spreading through that community underneath the sort of mainstream uh, community that exists. Okay, um, And then what ended up happening was we only saw about 20% of cases over the course of June actually attributed to pride. So that meant that the majority of cases were still happening in a much smaller um, group of people who essentially were traveling across the world and then spreading it this way. Now we're starting to see many more cases happening through contact outside of that particular community. And as a result of that, we have to change that messaging. So instead of going to the ring vaccination context, which is just one example of how the messaging used to work, now we're going to be asking people who happen to be in any kind of contact with any individual who happens to be within that community to go and get themselves vaccinated. And then eventually, if we don't stop it or stamp it out, as we like to say, then you're going to start to see widespread vaccination happening in places like Indiana and Georgia, where we're already starting to see that spillover. Well, you know, people right now, obviously people are after with, with the memories of or memories, the, the existence of COVID still very much with us, you know, concerns mm-hmm. over something like this. Well, how much should, what, what, can, what can people do? I mean, what, how, you know, what should people do? Well, the first thing you should do is look at your arm. And if you happen to have the smallpox scar, uh, you know, that, that uh, sort of divot in your arm, then you're pretty much, you're pretty much protected against monkeypox. Okay. If you don't have that and you don't happen to have anyone within your group that happens to be within the community that they've been talking about who are at most at risk, you don't have anything to worry about. Really, it comes down to the fact that at this point, you have to start looking at the people with whom you are associating and find out whether or not there is any kind of link to the communities. And while that may sound like stigmatization at this stage is what we call ring contact tracing. However, when this starts to go out into the general community, then it's just going to be a matter of, once again, trying to protect yourself. And remember, we see this all the time with other viruses. We saw this with mumps. Remember the NHL? I mean, we see this with hand, foot and mouth disease with respect to children and daycares. I mean, that's going up. That's that's flaring up all over the country. So this isn't something that's new. This isn't something for stigmatization. This is just general public health. I'm speaking with Jason Tetro, author and host of the Super Awesome Science Show. We're talking about monkeypox. Uh, there has been many uh, reporting tonight that the U.S. will declare a public health emergency imminently. Uh, San Francisco Today did. Uh, Canada, of course, uh, Dr. Theresa Tam uh, was in front of the media yesterday talking about Canada's response right now, how they're trying to coordinate both uh, locally and internationally uh, on this issue. When we come back, we'll talk a bit more about the vaccine because that is one thing that uh, uh, Quebec's uh, public health officer was talking about today. Uh, just how much of it is available, how much do we need, and whether or not our response has been coordinated enough, because there has been some criticism within Canada so far that we're not coordinating quite as well as we should be. That's next. My guest is Jason Tetro, author and host of the Super Awesome Science Show. We're talking about monkeypox, 745 confirmed case in this, cases in this country alone, according to Dr. Teresa Tam yesterday. Uh, the U.S. apparently about to declare a public health emergency. The WHO has already done so. Uh, Jason, I've, I've been seeing some, some criticism just around coordination so far and this idea mm-hmm. that maybe we should be paying for people to take time off so they can isolate and so forth like we did with COVID. Uh, have we been mm-hmm. doing enough? Have we been coordinating enough so far, do you think? I think what happened is it just exploded too quickly. Um, when, you know, if you look at how it was just a month ago, it was still very isolated within um, a specific community and therefore it wasn't really affecting the larger, um, you know, mainstream um, 
population. Um, now we're at a point where it is affecting the mainstream population. And remember, governments are usually about three weeks behind. <laughs> so right. the reality is that um, this is exploding at a, such an ex- an incredible rate that governments aren't really catching up in time. I mean, uh, it, it's just un- unfortunate that you know, viruses and, and bacteria seem to spread much faster than policy. Indeed. In this case, just so our listeners are clear, though, I mean, we know that it's not deadly, uh, as far as we can tell, but it, do, it, it, isn't, mm-hmm. it isn't anything to laugh at. I mean, it's, it's, it, is a, it is like an epox, right? Yeah, no, it's painful. Um, the, 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 the blistering and, and, and the popping of the, of the lesions and then the healing, I mean, it's very, very painful. Um, and if you have any kind of autoimmune disease, like eczema, or you have kidney problems, or you have heart problems, I mean, there are the potential for what we call sequelae or secondary pro, um, uh, factors that, that can occur. And uh, I mean, in, in Africa, uh, we have actually seen several deaths as a result of the current outbreak. So don't think that this is just something that you're going to get and then it's going to go away. This is Something that if you do have, you really should be having a conversation with your healthcare provider just to be absolutely sure you're going to be okay. Again, this is one of those. I mean, it existed. It was an, something that was ignored. I mean, we knew this was out there. Oh. And we probably could have gotten well ahead of it. And like many diseases that are in different parts of the world that we don't pay enough attention to, this one was clearly ignored at our own peril. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I first started doing research in microbiology back in 1986, and we were actually seeing um, extended cases and outbreaks of monkeypox back then. So, I mean, this isn't new. The only thing that is different is the fact that um, the monkeypox is really taking advantage of the fact that there's now such a large population that doesn't have immunity against the smallpox vaccine that it's finding it much easier to spread. Now, we almost almost had this in 2021. We almost had this in 2018. But in those particular cases, um, well, COVID stopped it from happening in 2021. And in 2018, it actually got stamped out before it could spread anywhere. So this is actually sort of version number three of it trying to actually take hold in the world. And and it seems to be working now. Uh, You touched on it already, the vaccine. We've been hearing a lot about it. I know when we initially talked about it, because it it, it is smallpox, we thought it's going to be very difficult to, to up manufacturing of it. Do we have enough? Um, we, well, I mean, there's going to be enough uh, because basically the um, particular type of um, vaccine, it's, it's relatively easy to make. And since it is what we call a modified vaccinia, cara, it's not smallpox. It's a variant that's kind of like smallpox, but it's nowhere near as problematic because it doesn't actually re- reproduce in the body. It just kind of um, stimulates the immune system. But because it, it's sort of the same concept as the flu vaccine, you can make lots and lots and lots of it. And there's always been a lot of that stock around because we've always had that fear of smallpox coming back. So I think now what's going to end up happening is the stocks that are currently there are going to be used in the ring vaccination and more is being made and hopefully that'll come in time to be able to deal with larger community vaccination campaigns should we need it. Another vaccine campaign that will be, um, what should we, on, what, should, what should we be on the lookout yeah. for now in the, in the near term? What will you be on the lookout for in the next little while? Uh, more women and children. Uh, because yeah. right now we're at the end of July, okay? We're going to start heading in towards August. August is when a lot of people do take their family vacations and they start sort of traveling around the world because obviously back to school is coming up in a month's time. So if we start to see huge numbers occurring around the third to fourth week of August, then we probably are going to have not only the Omicron vaccine campaign, we may end up actually having a monkeypox campaign for vaccines just so that we can protect um, the the children, the women, the family, the the community that has not been notified so far that could potentially end up being victimized by this particular virus as a result. And again, remember, governments are three weeks late, so I'm hoping they start now. (laughs) Another vaccine campaign. That's going to be difficult, isn't it? No. And the reason is, is that we're, we're, you know what, I actually was wondering if that would be the case, but considering the push I've seen from so many people to get the fourth dose of the current COVID vaccine, 
it's, it tells me that a lot more people are trusting vaccination than what we actually saw before COVID. It's just taken time to get there. So I think at this point, the majority of Canadians who are listening to this program are probably like, you know what, if it's going to prevent me from having something that's going to be incredibly painful, even for just a month, put it in my arm. Jason Tetro, thank you so much for your insight on this. Much appreciated. It was a pleasure. Take care. Well, you'll forgive the terrible pun, but there is something magical happening in Quebec City this week, and it's the first time it's happened in this country. Magicians from around the world are there to compete in the Fédération Internationale des Sociétés Magiques, or FISM, World Championship, something called the Olympics for magicians. It's been held every three years, I believe, since 1948, though this one was delayed by the pandemic. And again, it's the first time the event has been held outside of Europe or Asia. Thousands from around the world are there. There are 110 competing for the title of the world's best, including two Canadians. A victory can be a life-altering moment for a magician, as my next guest knows very well. Here's Robert Urick introducing him on a show called World's Greatest Magic, not long after he won that 1994 title in Japan. You've done this before, but you have never seen anything quite like this next performer. A few months ago, the magicians of the world gathered in Yokohama, Japan, to select the finest among them. And the man you're about to see was awarded Finest Magician General Magic. He's from Canada, and he's got more surprises than a Hitchcock movie. Ladies and gentlemen, Greg Fruin. Yeah, I went back to look for that. It's a great moment. The, the, the routine, the, the, the actual magic show that's put on after is unbelievable. We'll talk about that. Joining me now is Greg Fruin, Canadian magician, the man behind Niagara's Greg, Greg Fruin Dinner Theater and winner of the 1994 FISM World Championships of Magic. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Hey, no problem. How are you doing tonight? I'm I'm well. I'm not the one who drove back from Quebec City today, so it's uh, <laughs> yeah, it was a long so one. Wow, that's a long one from Niagara to Quebec. What was it like? I mean, this is uh, this is not something I, I I'd really heard much about. It, it's a big deal. Well, it is a very big deal, and as a matter of fact, uh, you know, for the fact that it was in North America for the first time, and actually Canada is so huge. It was so incredible. What's it, what's it like? I mean, it's, I, I, I was reading about it. It's called the Olympics for magicians, but how does it, how does it shake down? Well, I'll, I'll say it this way. The top magicians of the world are all there. Um, and whether they're competing or have competed, uh, there's magicians from every country and this is the elite. And so to get into this competition is number one, uh, amazing on its own, but to be able to kind of get to that elite level and compete and then win there's nothing more like it. it it's, it's an amazing thing. And uh, when, I, when I won and competed in 1994, it was my dream to win. And when it came true, uh, it was just amazing. It was an amazing thing. Yeah, I watched that actually. On uh, there's a you can look it up on YouTube. I mean, you know this. There's a Japanese TV version of it, and it's remarkable yes. to see you go through that routine because it's such a fantastic. Uh, I don't know if you call it an actor, but the bird act is such such an amazing. We can talk about that in a minute. But uh, th- there's some. Canadians there, I know, and you have a student there too, don't you? Uh, yes, so uh, I have a student. She's actually from mainland China, and she was uh, brought to me because of my work with the birds that I do. And uh, she had her own act at the time. Four years ago, she came to me and started to learn how to get to that elite level and learn how to be more creative. So over the last four years, we've been working together, and uh, she competed yesterday, I think around 11, 11.30, and she did amazing, like, I can't even imagine how well uh, she did. I knew it was going to be good, but it just, she blew them away. Two standing ovations. They were screaming. It was awesome. It was so, so good to see. Uh, Because watching yours and watching some of the others, I mean, when one thinks of magic, sometimes you think of like card tricks and so on, but this is a full on performance and, and, you know, watching what you've done as well. I mean, these are their acts and pacing and what is the secret behind a very, very good routine one that's at that elite level well i mean the first thing obviously is the work the work ethic has to be above and beyond what most people would think uh and in this case one of the things that i said when when we started to work together before i agreed was that i wanted to make sure she would put the work in i don't want to be the harder one working on this i don't want to be the one staying up at night trying to fix things or create things i want her to be just as involved and be able to practice and get to that level which she did, and she did it amazing. Because in your case, I imagine it just takes, unbe- how much practice does it take? I mean, for instance, the 1994 routine that, that, that won you the world championship, how much, 
you know, blood, sweat and tears was that? You know, it really was, uh, I mean, I wouldn't know how many hours, but we put years in my wife and I, cause she was also in the act and right. it came down the last year alone. I worked every day on the act, practiced it every day. And I had a ritual. I would do so many rehearsals in the morning, so many in the afternoon, and then so many in the evening and near the end. And I was going to sound really funny. I didn't even want to take my, my, my jacket or my clothes or any of my outfit to the dry cleaner. Cause I'd miss a few days of, of rehearsal. So it was very important to do that every day and get to that, you know, to that level where you were so confident you didn't have to worry. What is it like then to then perform it in front of your peers uh, and and for a life-altering, uh, I mean, potentially a life-altering moment if you happen to win? Well, I mean, the initial, uh, when I competed in the initial competition, I competed in a few uh, smaller competitions before I went to FISM. And so I had a little bit of, uh, a little bit of experience and had a little bit of uh, knowledge on what it was going to be like. But when I hit that stage in Japan, it was, it was the most, I mean, I was nervous, of course, but then the energy hit once I got on stage. And I can still remember how that felt. Now, what the interesting thing was, I haven't done the act for almost 10 years now. Mm-hmm. And... Because FISM was here in Canada, I decided, uh, because I was on the show the other night, I opened the show and I was the MC and the host. I pulled it out and I rehearsed it and got it back to where it was. And I did it for the opening of the show. But the cool thing was when the curtain opened and people saw the act, before I even got on stage, they started cheering and clapping. And it was a really a cool feeling because they hadn't seen it in that many years and they were so excited that I brought it back out. So it was really exciting. And you just, and it just, you, you, you're able to, to find it again that quickly because it, it, it looks, I mean, obviously if you're not a magician, it, it's remarkable, right? It's magic. Um, but you're able just to pick it back up after 10 years. Well, I mean, not right away. It took a little bit of, of, of practice, but not like it did back in the day. Now, remember after I won, I, I performed that act for almost 20 years and I would say right. probably over 15,000 performances, I, I would probably estimate. So, you know, there's a lot of muscle memory and there's a lot of things that were easy to get back real quick. The hard part for me was uh, the concentration of knowing what comes next and the music and the timing. So that took about a month and a half working in my theater every night. Uh, But I got it back and uh, I'm really glad to say it went perfect and uh, it got a great reaction. So I was really, really excited to do it. Yeah, I mean, I imagine for for that crowd, it's a bit like seeing Robert Plant play Stairway to Heaven or something. It's 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 legendary at this point, isn't it? Yeah, and you know what the weird thing is, like people don't really understand that magicians. We're a very close knit group, and we have uh, we really have a respect level that I don't think a lot of other uh, industries, uh, entertainment industries, have, and so that respect level goes a long way. And for the, to have almost 2000 magicians clapping and cheering at the beginning of the act before you even start is pretty cool. And so, yeah, it's a great, I mean, being a magician and being in the magic community is just such a great thing. I, I've always wanted to be a magician. So this is my dream. It seems to, has it changed much since I mean, obviously everything's changed quite a bit since 1994, but what has changed since then? And what's the trajectory been uh, even since you were doing some, you know, when you first went to FISM? Well, you know, actually one of the biggest things, and we had a really great discussion about this uh, at the convention, is how social media and platforms that allow us to, uh, you know, and back in the day, for example, when I was on World's Greatest Magic, that was one of the only TV shows you could get on. So it was very difficult for magicians to get seen. Now we have so many more avenues and so many more ways uh, to get to our, to our uh, you know, fans and to be able to show our magic. Um, so I think it's really changed that way. It also allows us to then be more creative because now we're not just stuck worrying about getting into one show or one theater. We have so much more platforms and things that we can do. So the art is really changing fast and it's really growing and it's a really good thing because I, you know, magic's one of those universal, uh, I mean, people from all around the world, no matter what nationality age, uh, they love magic. So it's really cool. Yeah, I should mention. I mean, it's very hard to do to do your act justice on the radio. Obviously, <laughs> yeah. I, I suggest people should watch the Bird Act, Greg Fruin's Bird Act. Watch it; it's great. But it's 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 it, there's no there's no narration in it. It's it's you, anybody in the world could watch that. There's no language. Yeah, yeah, and that's a great thing about magic. Uh, I mean, we you know we do talk in magic and we do tricks that we will you know communicate with the audience that way. But magic's a very universal thing because it's a visual art. Uh, and I think one of the things that people, you know, including myself, 
when we see a really good magician do something, like, for example, floating a lady, you know, it makes us dream and want to, you know, because we always have these fantasies of doing these cool things in life, flying, or, you know, we can name a whole list of things. And I think it's really cool when you see a magician because you get that excitement. I'm talking to Greg Fruin. He's a Canadian magician, the man behind Niagara's Greg Fruin Dinner Theatre and winner of the 1994 FISM World Championships of Magic. Those World Championships, it stands for Fédération Internationale des Sociétés Magiques uh, or the Federa International Federation of the Society of Magicians, I guess. It's their World Championships. It's being held in Quebec City, as Greg was pointing out, the first time it's ever been held in North America, let alone Canada. It's usually held in Europe or Asia. Uh, he won the 1994 championship. When we come back, we'll just talk a bit more about uh, where magic is going these days and what it's like to be back on stage in Niagara and welcoming people back after uh, after some years where I'm sure you weren't able to do that. That's next. And magic is the topic we're on this half hour. Greg Fruin is my guest. He's a Canadian magician, the man behind Niagara's Greg Fruin Dinner Theatre, and the winner of the 1994 FISM World Championships of Magic, essentially the Olympics of Magic. They are going on, that very same competition is going on right now in Quebec City. It's the first time it's been held in North America, the first time it's been held in Canada, obviously. And uh, Greg was just there. He actually brought out his award-winning or his championship-winning act, uh, the Bird Act, again for the first time in a decade uh, to open up uh, the, uh, the the FISM um, event in Quebec City a few days ago. Um, what's it like to be able to, to just go back to, to doing what you do? I know that uh, obviously, like all of us during the pandemic, you probably had to um, have had to limit limit your, your work, but now I guess you're, you're welcoming folks back to Niagara. Well, yeah, you know, it was tough. I mean, the entertainment industry got hit probably the hardest. Uh, we were shut down for a long time. And as a performer, the hard part is, is uh, you know, one part of our job is to make people happy. We want to, when we do our shows, we want to have them take, take away from their daily problems and daily life and be able to take them uh, on, a, on a journey and be able to enjoy and, and all, you know, ultimately have a great time. And during the pandemic, obviously, we couldn't do that. And most people... Uh, we're stuck at home and, and couldn't even communicate with each other. But uh, we're back open now. And what's great is I think people are really appreciating even more than they used to uh, the fact that they can, you know, go out, see a show, be around people and really enjoy laughter and good entertainment uh, all, in, all in an evening. So it's been really, really great to be back on stage. I, I kept thinking when I was watching some of the videos just of, of your acts, how did you start? What was the first, what was the first magic trick you ever did? Or did you fall in love with it at first sight? Was it one of those things? Uh, kind of. My, my grandfather was a bit of an amateur magician, did a few little tricks, coin tricks. And then I got a little magic kit for Christmas. And then one year, and this is what's really great because, uh, because of FISM being in, in Quebec and in Canada and being the first time in North America, uh, what got me started in magic, my grandfather then took me to see Doug Hennings in Toronto when I was 11 years old. And yeah. I remember this. I remember that show today. Uh, I can still remember it. But when I left the theater, I told him, I said, you know, I want to be like him. I want to be a magician when I get older. And so that really was where it all started. That's. I, I think I saw Doug Hedding has felt the same thing as well. I think I had the same magic kit, but Greg, I was a terrible. I don't know what it was. There's a <laughs> gift, and I don't. I never had it. So uh, that's. It's uh, yeah. Well, you know, and I'll be honest with you. When I started in magic, when I was young at that age, I wasn't very good either. And uh, but when you're young, you know, you 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 just you have that passion, and it you know it, it drives you. And uh, for me, it just meant more and more practice. So uh, you know, you weren't alone at the beginning. <laughs> Exactly. Um, so big things. So by the time, I mean, this was really life altering when you won this. I know you've been now been around the world. You were on TV. I was watching some of the clips. Uh, you must be pretty excited for all those you watched over the last few days on stage at this current event, because there could be some really interesting things ahead for them. Well, yeah. And you know what? It's great. Uh, now that I'm uh, getting near the end of my career, not end, but you know, I'm later on in my career. It's really great to see the young, younger magicians with the same passion and drive that I had when I was a kid because it makes me, you know, kind of go back and relive some of that myself. Uh, so this past week has been such a, an amazing week, especially the fact that we've had to, you know, uh, we were delayed by COVID. Uh, it was really great to get back and watch the energy, watch the passion, and watch these young magicians uh, strive to, to be the best. And ultimately, they all want the same thing I did. They just want to be a great magician and be able to entertain people. So it's really, really been a great week, and we really had a great time there.
And, and, and any, any predictions? I, I suppose, I suppose you, you don't want to. Do we know when, when do they announce the winner? How does that work? So it actually works in a two-stage process. Tomorrow night, they'll announce the first place in each category. There's uh, seven or eight, I think, categories. Right. And then on Saturday, those first-place winners go back and they recompete again for what they call the coveted Grand Prix prize. So what that means is it's even though you've won your category, you now compete against the other categories to see who's the best of the best. So, so what kind of, I mean, it must have to be not only magically as your bird act was magically perfect, but also theatrically perfect as well. It must be hard to, I mean, you must know it when you see it, you must know great when you see it, but, uh, it, it must be tough to come up with, to be so perfect. Yeah. And you know, the hard part is, is what people like our job is a, an interesting job because we have to make the tough things look easy and the easy things look tough, which sounds really weird, but if you think about it. You know, if someone's escaping from something, we have to make that look even tougher than it is. But if I'm doing a sleight of hand piece that might be really tough, I got to make that look really easy and almost flawless. So it's kind of a weird thing that we have to sort of think about when we're creating our magic. Uh, But ultimately, the package that holds it all together, the entertainment, like magic's our tool, we have to learn how to create the entertainment side so the audience enjoys it. Because just doing a magic trick for example, standing there with just a regular uh, jeans and T-shirt and no music would be good, but adding all that theatrical elements together and making it choreographed together—that's what really makes it great. Yeah, no, I, I was I was amazed at how much magic has. I mean, Doug Heading was great, but it's amazing how much magic has evolved even since his time. Well, true, but here's what's really interesting: like a lot of you know, if you go back in history. Doug Henning's actually, uh, magic was on the way out. Not the way out, but it, it wasn't on TV. Uh, it wasn't popular. Most magicians back in those days that were working will tell you that, you know, there were birthday parties, maybe the odd banquet, but there wasn't review shows and Las Vegas shows. But Doug Henning's was the guy that turned it and made it cool. And I think he was the one that actually, uh, we wouldn't be here today talking to the level we were would, are if it wasn't for him. But he made magicians think, okay, we got to think out of the box now. It's not just about the magic. There's more to this. There's theater. There's, there's entertainment. So I really think, Doug, uh, and I think when you look back, he did some amazing modern magic as well. So, yeah, hats off to him. And Greg Fruit, I, I can imagine there's people who've watched your stuff who felt the very same thing <laughs> over the years. Well, you must have been told know, that. I, yeah, and I did get, I mean, it was really great to be able to do the, the old act back again. And a lot of people came up to me and said, you know, when I was young, I watched you on The World's Greatest Magic, and it inspired me. And it was so great to see that live, because there's a lot of younger magicians that haven't been able to see that live. So it was a really great feeling. And I, you know, I drove all day and, and got home just about two hours ago. I don't know if I'm going to sleep tonight still, because I'm such on a high of what's happened this week. It's great to hear that. All these years later, I mean, 1994 is a ways back now that all these years later doing that act and then getting the reaction that you, that you always get is still such a, such a charge. It's, it's inspiring. Yeah. And I, you know, I agree, but it was a risk too, because you know what, they might've looked at this old guy walking out on stage and go, Hey, what's he doing out here? Are you doing that old thing again? (laughs) (laughs) Will you do it again? Would I do it again? I, you know, I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, I did it special because it was in Canada, but I'm not sure if I'm going to continue doing it. I think it's time to maybe put things to bed that, you know, that are, that are what they were, you know? Well, if, if you haven't seen listeners, if you haven't seen Greg Fruin, The Bird Act, I mean, there's many other good, I'm sure you've done lots of great other magic over the years, but if you get a chance to watch it, it's well worth watching. <laughs> thanks so much for your time tonight. I really appreciate your insight into this. I appreciate it too. And thanks for uh, having us on the show today. Well, as I've said Earlier, The Beachcombers pretty much carried me from infancy to adulthood. The show set in Gibson's BC ran from 1972 to 1990, a remarkable 387 episodes. Ask many Canadians, certainly of my vintage, and they'll probably be able to name at least a handful of characters. Nick, Jesse, Relic, Molly, Constable John. In fact, the first episode to air was called Partners. It described how Jesse and Nick formed their business ties. That was 50 years ago this year. It was that partnership between Nick and the late, played by the late Bruno Jerusi and Jesse that really formed the backbone of the show, tracking down logs on the Persephone. Here's one particularly great 1987 episode called Sunday Drive. That bad. You know, I really shouldn't go, Nick. I promised Laurel I'd spend Sunday with Tommy. We never seem to get any time together. 
Now, you make it up to him. It's the least we can do to help a friend. That's what you said about the last time he asked us for help. Remember? Yeah, don't remind me. Why do you think I don't want to go alone? I got a bad feeling about this, Nick. Of course, Jesse Jim was played by Pat John. He passed away earlier this month at the age of 69 in Seashell, not far from where the Beachcombers was filmed uh, for nearly two decades. It's where he was from. His funeral was held uh, yesterday. For millions across Canada and more around the world, uh, he was a trailblazer, an Indigenous actor and residential school survivor who graced our screens with confidence, character, and comic timing. Uh, Here again is that Sunday Drive episode with Constable John at the wheel of a car, Relic, Nick, and Jesse all together. Relic, the abuse this car has taken, I could charge you with destruction of public property. What's that smell? Furthermore, I think I will. Yeah, yeah, I will. Ah, blow it out your nose, flat foot. That's it, I will for sure now. What's that smell? I, th- I, th- I think the brakes are, are overheating. Well, what makes you say that? Because we, we don't have any. <gasps> no pr- Well, the actor at the wheel that day, Jackson Davies, worked alongside uh, John for many years on the Beachcombers and kept in touch with him after that. And he joins me now. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome, Ben. Thank you for asking me. How did you get involved with the show? Uh, How did you wind up on the Beachcombers? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I, uh, I, I, the audition, I think, had one line, uh, uh, and and I I thought it was my acting skill that got me that the part then, but I think they had they had an RCMP uniform that was forty two tall, and I was uh, forty two tall. I think my my audition was, can you say this line? And are you forty two tall? And I went, yeah, I can. Well, I think the other thing was, can you grow a mustache? So uh, yeah, I think I was only going to be in there just because they needed someone to drive a cop car out of a shot, but uh, it, uh, it seemed to work out after that, and I ended up doing sixteen years on. it. Yeah. So what did you make of the premise of the show when you first saw it? Because if you look back at just the way the ensemble, it was for 1972, it was a pretty daring uh, cast or pretty daring storyline. Well, you know, it's true. I I was thinking about that not not long ago. I mean, here you have an indigenous person, uh, a kid who's left a residential school, is getting, leaving the reserve, and then he, for some reason, ends up being a partner with his immigrant. And then the two of them go out on this, on this log, you know, the boat collecting uh, logs, basically, you know, cleaning up the beaches, very uh, ecology-minded uh, show. And uh, it sounds like something that would be done now, as opposed to, uh, you know, uh, 50 years ago. God, it's hard to say that, 50 years ago. Uh, but it's and a lot of the shows are that way, too. I mean, a lot of the shows that that uh, I've been looking back at them the last week or two. You know, an actor sometimes after I was that type of actor who after I did something, I would never watch it. Uh, yeah. And I've been going back and taking a look at them and, uh, and, and seeing, you know, I'll have to, you know, through the eyes looking at, at Pat John, we, we call him PJ. So looking back at PJ's work and, and realizing how honest he was, he was, you know, and he didn't get the credit, the actors who play, you know, the, the subtle parts and who uh, you know, have that strength, don't get the credit. I, I call it the, uh, you know, it's like the rain man, you know, Dustin Hoffman got all the, um, of the accolades, but uh, you know, the other actor, um, Tom Cruise uh, had the hard part. Right. And, and, and PJ yeah. was that way. He was a great person to bounce something off. He was fun to work with. Uh, he was always prepared uh, and he, he brought joy on so many levels. One thing I noticed, cause I've watched a lot of episodes over the last few weeks as well, uh, was just how, how much all the gags relied on his timing. Yeah, no, he's a great sense of timing. And, uh, and, and the greatest thing about a comic actor are the ones that don't, don't try to play it as a funny moment, right? He just he just plays it from the he plays honesty. And that's another thing for comedy too. If you play it real and you pay, play it honest, it's funny. If you try to push it, then it's uh, it's not it's not quite as uh, as clever. Do you remember meeting him on set? What was he like? Well, you know we. Uh, we met, I started, like I said, in seven, he started, well, he filmed in 71, but he, uh, the series started in 72 and I was there in 74 is we, we found out we had something in common and that's our birthdays, uh, March 17th. Uh, I was 1950, he was uh, 1953. And the idea that we had both had the same birthday 
we kind of kind of hit it off that way, and we'd always make sure we'd we talk to each other. We'd have you know our own little celebrations. Uh, and his his mother named him Patrick for St. Patrick's Day, and then I asked my mother why she didn't. She said, "Okay, oh, I, I guess I should have." But uh, yeah, so we, you know we hit it off. He's uh, he was fun to be around. Uh, he had uh, I think I've said this before, but it's true. He had the best laugh in the world, and he would laugh. It would just uh, uh, it'd be great. I would try try everything possible to try to make him laugh just so I could hear him laugh. <laughs> I mean, over the years, I mean, the show evolved, the characters evolved. Um, how, how was it to be on set through that time? Uh, because clearly, I mean, I, you know, I don't think anyone thought it would last 19 years, uh, but there no, it went, th- you know, year after yeah. year. I think, uh, I mean, Bruno said, well, I knew, I, I, I think it's going to go five years. Uh, uh, and when I joined it, I thought maybe, you know, I was, I was hoping it would survive my production, my, my performance. But uh, it, uh, yeah, it, uh, it, it did. I mean, you went, when you think of it, it's a small town. Gibson's a small, and Gibson's played Gibson's, right? So it was, it's, we played Canadiana. One of the most thankful things I can say about the show is we wrapped ourselves in the flag. We didn't hide behind you know, uh, saying that we are a, a town in the Pacific Northwest. We played Gibson, BC, Canada, and we played that for the world. Uh, but you have this small town that from 1971, when we started filming, to 1990, a lot changed in the world. And and we were kind of a little snapshot of all those years, right? Uh, whether it was what the topics were, what we were wearing. Uh, again, we tried to be topical. We tried to, we did shows about, for you know, first growth forestry. We did shows about the ecology. We did shows about indigenous rights. Uh, all, all those things and uh, diversity. And, uh, and uh, when I look back at it, maybe at the time, you know, you don't have social media and, and you, you're not always reminded of it. You do the show uh, and then maybe you hear you get a couple of million viewers and maybe someone does a review once in a while. But you just go about your business. And my world was rather small. I lived, you know, in Vancouver and Vancouver, you know, till 85 was pretty small. And uh, uh, you didn't realize it had the impact it had on the world uh, until social media came I mean, I have my picture in front of Molly's Reach. I, I, I know someone in Seashell that was there not long ago. There's a picture of me standing in front of Molly's Reach, you know, at 50. There you go. If that's, a, if that's any indication. And I, I can't tell many people. Even, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, if I had a dime for every time someone had a picture in front of Molly's Reach, I think I'd be a rich person. <laughs> exactly. Uh, how did, how did, uh, how, how did, yeah, Pat, how did PJ's, evolve as it because I, I know that he came in this he was he was so young when he started in the show and he sort of played the same character year after year and i can imagine that for all of you that that could be a challenge too yeah it was i mean he had no acting experience uh, i mean he'd uh uh he had none, none. it uh, and phil keatley the producer wanted people uh who had didn't have a lot of experience that's maybe why he hired me too but he was really important that 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 this character of, of Jesse uh, was an indigenous person who, who knew, you know, how to survive, who knew how to swim, who knew how, how to row up. He, he knew the indigenous life at that particular time. And, uh, you know, PJ was young and, uh, and he, you know, we all learned over the year. I mean, I didn't have a lot of experience either. And uh, we had two wonderful teachers with Bruno Jerusi and Robert Clothier who were, I mean, we're talking world-class actors who worked on Broadway and could, could work anywhere in the world. And we get to work with them. It was like going to school and uh, it was a location show, show. So we'd move up to Gibson's and, uh, and spend time there. And uh, it became, it became a wonderfully kind of quirky family. And uh, you, you have to get along when you, uh, when you work that, uh, you know, that many years together. I'm talking with Jackson Davies, who played Constable John on the Constable John Constable on the Beachcombers for many, many years. We're talking about the life and legacy of Pat John, who passed away um, just a few weeks ago, who played Jesse Jim on the show for many, many years. Perhaps one of the most iconic uh, characters in Canadian television, at least one that was very left a big impression on me as I was growing up. When we come back, just a bit more about the legacy of the show, a bit more about Pat John. That's next. It's my pleasure this half hour to have Jackson Davies with us. He played Constable John on the Beachcombers. We're talking about Pat John, best known for playing Jesse Jim, uh, Jackson's co-star and friend for all those many years who passed away a few weeks ago at the age of 69. Um, What have you made of the outpouring? I was really 
touched. I, and I, I, you know, and this is just as a fan of the show, I was really touched by the outpouring of respect and 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 condolences that 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 emerged uh, after news of Pat's death uh, became public. You know, I, it was the same with me. It, uh, you know, it it, uh, it gave me so much love, and it kind of broke my heart at the same time. Right? Um, that we, he, you know, he was so he. he it was wonderful to, to hear, I mean, people from all different parts of the country, people from Europe and stuff. It's through the Facebook site is, again, the only way that you can kind of contact that, as well as you take a look at all the, the news items that are that are being done. And there was a theme to it about how important he was. Uh, of course, he was important to Indigenous, you know, viewers. This, you know, this is the the early '70s, and they would not be able to see someone who looked like them on television. All right, I had someone who actually reached out to me that was in a residential school, and she said they the nuns would actually let them watch the beachcombers until I think Jesse got. Uh, uh, they started to do a little bit more Indigenous shows, and then I think maybe they they wouldn't let them watch it anymore. But there was so much. Uh, there was so much love. I mean, all of a sudden, again, being able to see someone that that, that looks like them. Plus, also, you know, for the non-indigenous uh, uh, audiences, this was a family. Our, our, our viewers were family. It was. There's this sense that in everything they said, this was family viewing. This was a time where, and everyone would say, "I watched it with my dad. I watched it with my mom. We watched it as a family." There's very rare now that they have you know, um, family shows that people watch as a family. Uh, maybe it was a time where they only had two or three channels and one television. But uh, that time over those period of years, and and again, we were getting the same numbers as Hockey Night in Canada. Uh, it was it was really wonderful. And uh, it's funny because I, I talked to, to BJ a, a week before he passed, and, and I was saying, you know, people – People love you out there. They, you know, a lot of people had crushes on you, and we laughed about that too. And uh, and I was just hoping that that uh, that he knew how much he was loved by that, uh, you know, by the audience, uh, and and obviously the rest of us too. He didn't act again, did he? After no, that. no, no. He, you know what? I, I he was. Uh, is there a term called accidental actor? I mean, he he did it. I think he. I think he was working. He left high school or, or residential school, and then he was working in a sawmill. And then he, he got. A, he said, "Well, this maybe it's a kind of an interesting job." And uh, and like all of us, we didn't think it would go 19 years. Uh, and maybe by that time, he uh, he was a bit tired of it. I mean, he was in most of the episodes. I mean, I did I did 250, but he did 370 or whatever, right? Uh, yeah. And and it was very difficult for him. I mean, he was. He was kind of living in two worlds. He was living in the indigenous world. He was living in this, the the, the world of, of of television, which at that time was partic- particularly white, right? So he was living in and splitting those uh, those worlds. And he, you know, he, he had some difficulties. It was time. I mean, when you have some money, when you're eighteen, seventeen, and eighteen years old, uh, you know, you get a lot of friends, and some people are there for the wrong reasons, and. Uh, he had, uh, you know, there were some, some some problems, but the beautiful thing was, and I always thank Bruno for this, and I think you got into a situation with CBC, we're kind of wanting to dump him, and Bruno's great line said, you know, if, if Pat goes, I go, uh, meaning that I'm going to stand up for this guy here, you uh, you take this kid and uh, and you expect him to be perfect, well, nobody's perfect. But uh, he, uh, that the love that was out there uh, from everyone, uh, it just... Uh, it, it made me feel so good. And I, and I, you know, I hope somewhere, someplace that uh, he's, he's smiling. I hope so. Yeah. Any, yeah. any, any, any one particular memory from the show that really stands out to you of the two of you together? Oh God, probably so many, it's, so many, right? It's probably so many. It's just, and he was, um, he was fun. Cause I would try to, I would try to kind of break him up and he was really hard to break up. And, uh, and uh, he's he, and I and I'm dyslexic and have some learning disabilities and I have sometimes difficult pronouncing some words and he used to give me a rough time and then there was one time I think he had, the line was it's it's I think we got Bruno's character bought got a Ferrari or something instead of you know a, and that was a company car and um, PJ's character was a little mad at Bruno because he got the company car and in his line he was fixing a boat and the, and the line was it's the company winch. Uh, winch rather, but he kept saying winch, 
and and then of course the 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 show went, went. I think we ended up doing twenty takes on it, and and we ended up changing the part because once I started laughing, and then he did too. It was coming out winch every time. The company winch actually has an interesting connotation now that I think of it, but <laughs> winch was a problem. So I I could laugh at him because uh, I was there many times on my own. Well, it sounds like you had both a beautiful working uh, relationship, but also a great friendship as well over the many, many years. It must have been, uh, yeah. must have been special. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the interesting thing about, you know, Pat, you know, tended to, he ended up you know, fishing and, and crabbing and, and uh, doing some things for a long time. And, and I kind of lost touch with him. And uh, and then I think it was on my birthdays, because I always used to try and track him down on my birthdays and, you know, cell phones changes and numbers and things like that. But uh, over the last uh, couple of years, uh, we've gotten a lot closer and we spent some time together and I tried to call him every couple of weeks and, uh, and, uh, uh, and it was, it was fun. Again, same Pat, I've got the sharpest mind. Uh, we, you know, old guys, you know, can be sitting around talking about things and you go, you know, that what's his name or whatever, whatever, you know, that time that, right. well, he remembers what's his name. He knows all, he said, oh, you mean that guy? And I'm going, how do you do that? How can you remember all those things? But, uh, yeah, sharp as a, sharp as a wit, sharp as a tack. Jackson Davies, thank you so much for your time tonight. And I'll have to go back and find an episode of Jesse laughing just to hear that that laugh again. (laughs) I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks, Ben. Well, I owe it to my wife if I know anything about whale sharks, because I hadn't really paid much attention to them for most of my life. And she was a huge fan of whale sharks. I've actually seen now seen a whale shark or seen whale sharks off the coast of Mexico. They are indescribably awesome massive, the size of a bus when you see them up close. It's hard to imagine how evolution created something so completely gargantuan and so different from us. But not only are they the world's largest fish, we knew that it turns out they're also the large planet's largest omnivores. And that is a surprise, even to those who study the massive creatures closely. And it calls into question uh, most of what we thought we knew about how they sustain themselves, these giant 30, 39, 40 foot long creatures. The discovery was made by scientists studying whale sharks off Western Australia, including Dr. Mark Meekin, who's the principal research scientist at the Australian Institute of Marine Science. And he joins us now. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Hey, g'day, Ben. How are you, man? Very well. I, I mean, what this is, I, I read through your article as well as it was covered in The Guardian as well. Uh, the, what a fascinating find. I mean, You've studied these animals for quite a while. These, you've studied whale sharks for quite a while. What did you set out to find about their eating habits? Was there anything about them that you thought you didn't know? Well, you know, it's a, it's a funny, funny example of how sometimes your eyes betray you, you know. We, we see these animals coming to Ningaloo Reef, which is in Western Australia, up in the tropics. And, uh, and we turn up every year from about sort of March through to August. And that coincides with this big blooming plankton and a lot of the there what we see them there eating are these tiny shrimp things called krill and you can see them you know eating this stuff all the time you thought well there's the answer that's why they're coming to ningaloo and that's all there is to it but there's been some really fantastic new techniques developed and you can analyze the microchemistry of these animals just by taking a skin sample and it turned out the story was way way more complex than that for people who aren't familiar, entirely familiar with the whale shark, they're called gentle giants for a reason, I gather. I mean, they are sharks, um, but but they, they, I mean, I've seen them. They open their mouths to this incredible, and they seem to consume just, you know, they're ton, they're filter feeders, right? To, uh, yeah. to explain. Yeah. What does so, that mean? So, so basically, um, if you're going to be big, and, and you're right, whale sharks are really big. You know, these things are huge. If you're going to be big, you have to eat food. There has to be a lot of food around you, right? And if you're in the ocean, well, then you focus on plankton. And plankton's pretty tiny, um, it's, but it's everywhere, right? And so if you have a gill system, a mouth that can just filter this stuff out as you swim along, there you go. You're like a giant plankton net, really. That's, that's essentially how they make their living. Because they don't have sharp teeth. I mean, we call them sharks, but they don't, they don't look anything like a shark that you would, that you, they don't look anything like jaws, in other words. No, they don't. I mean, you know, uh, they're the most beautiful animals. But put yourself out the front of Ningaloo Reef, Ben. Imagine you're floating on a nice tropical ocean, the sun on your back, you're snorkeling along there, you look down through the water, it's deep blue, 
you look out horizontally and you see this enormous shape coming towards you with this giant open mouth. And as it comes towards you, the silhouette resolves itself into this giant shark that's covered in stripes and spots. The sunlight's reflect, refracting off its back. It's just an incredible experience. It's like swimming with something that's just arrived at a prehistory into your lap. It's really a, a fabulous experience. I can see why your wife's so keen about them. And even after working on them for 20 years, so am I. And that's why this, the, what we found when we looked at, their, looked at their tissue was such a surprise. We thought we really knew something about these sharks. And it turns out that there's a lot more to it. Yeah, because even as as a neophyte, I mean, I, I remember sw swimming with them, and, and and what was always what I was so amazed by was how quiet they were. <laughs> how quiet these, you know, they, there's the massive thing, and all of a sudden you look beside you, and they're just kind of floating by. You know, it was it was. Well, um, yeah, it's it's a it is rated as one of the top ten wildlife experiences in the world, and, and for very good reason. You know, it is it is like swimming with prehistory. You've got to figure, figure these things, though. They're swimming along with their mouths open, and that costs a lot of energy. If, if you talk to any fisherman, pulling a net through the water, it's an energetically expensive thing to do. So these guys, what they're trying to do is they're trying to focus on areas where the, the little shrimp-like animals are plankton are all aggregated, things like windrows or fronts between water masses. And that aggregates their prey for them so that they can feed more efficiently. So they get basically more bang for their buck when they're pushing that so, net through the water. But the problem so we, for the sharks is, sorry, the, the problem no, go for ahead, sharks go is ahead. basically, the problem for the sharks is that those processes, those physical processes that aggregate their prey, the shrimps and stuff, also aggregate lots of marine debris. In this case, it turns out to be seaweed. And what we found was that these animals are actually uh, consuming an awful lot of seaweed too. And, and that was something that, I mean, I, I remember even being told when we were, uh, went to see them that you know, they came to this area because of the krill. This is why they're here. This is what they eat. Mm -hmm. This is how they sustain themselves. And you've basically discovered that that's not really, that's not really the case at all. They actually sustain themselves also with something entirely different, which is, which is fascinating. Well, that, that's the thing. Okay, you know, you've got this energy expensive sort of mode of feeding, filtering things out. And what do you do if you get, if you swallow some floating seaweed? Well, you've got a couple of choices, right? Sharks can vomit up their stomachs. So they could just get rid of the whole thing. But that would be an energetically really wasteful thing to do. The alternative is that you actually hold it in your gut. Um, but the problem there becomes, well, you're actually taking up space in your gut that could be used for food. So over evolutionary time, what we think has happened, these sharks have actually worked out a way to digest the, the, the plant material that's coming into them. And so it turns out that when you look at their, the microchemistry in, in their skin, these tiny skin samples we take from them, it, it tells us that these things are really eating quite a lot of the, the floating algae. Did it did it answer any questions that you had about how such a large animal could sustain itself continuously? Did, did it did it solve any? Once you found that out, did, was there an aha moment? Aha! I understand now something about them that now makes more sense. Well, it was a little bit of shock, Ben. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> no you know, we, we were, you know, because it's it's kind of like denying what you see because when you look at the animals, we see them on the surface, we see them running along with their mouths open at the surface, filter feeding, and, and you see them targeting these big swarms of krill and things like that. So, you know, it, it, it really took us aback that maybe it's, you know, that they're actually getting a lot of other things that out of that, out of that process, not just the krill. So that took us aback. But in some ways, it, it, it does actually stand to reason. Because if you look on land, all the biggest animals ever since the age of the dinosaurs have all been herbivores. And they're herbivores because they're, you know, the, pl the planet's green. There's lots of plants around. And if you're big, you want to feed on something, a food source that's very abundant. So basically, all these big things tend to feed on, on, uh, on plants, on, la on land. But this is the first instance we've found that, that the same thing may be true in the oceans as well. Because in this case, I mean, you actually described it as sort of 
having to, you know, changing everything we knew about this particular animal that's well-researched. I mean, whale sharks are not unknown uh, to us, but there's a lot we don't know. But you described it as sort of changing everything we knew about them, which in scientific terms is a big statement. It is. Um, well, it's certainly changing. It's changing the evidence before our eyes. That's that's the real thing. And and I think it turns out that it, it's a lot more complex than than just the surface, uh, the surface appearance. And so much of science really turns out to be like that. Ben, you know, once you once you scratch the surface, there's a whole lot more there. And when we look back in history. Um, you know, the biggest herbivore uh, on land at the moment, the, or sorry, the biggest omnivore on land at the moment is Kodiak bear. And that thing's about 680 kilos. Um, and, and if we look back through the whole sweep of time, back to the dinosaurs, then there's a thing called uh, Dinocerus, which is, which is a, a, a herbivorous dinosaur. That got to about seven, uh, seven tons. A whale shark, 30 tons, probably more. Um, we're really talking... The largest omnivore that that you know, I, I I'm a bit reluctant to say that the largest omnivore that's ever been because the fossil record is very incomplete and tomorrow someone will probably turn up a large you know, omnivorous dinosaur that'll make a liar of me. But um, as far as we know, this is one of the largest omnivores that has actually ever existed on the planet. Incredible thought. It's a remarkable finding. I'm speaking with Dr. Mark Meekin. He's the principal research scientist at the Australian Institute of Marine Science. We're talking about a recent discovery uh, about what whale sharks eat. I know that uh, they are the the ocean's biggest fish. Um, now we also know they are the world's largest omnivores. We found that they not only eat krill, uh, sort of a small shrimp-like thing that we see them absorb as filter feeders. They almost act, their mouths almost act as huge nets as they swim through the ocean, but they also ingest a lot of algae and it turns out they consume that too. So it's kind of changed everything as, as uh, Dr. Meekin was explaining, kind of changed everything we thought we knew about how they sustain themselves. After this, we'll talk about what that means, how it how it may help us better protect them in the future if we know exactly what it is that they're consuming. That's coming up. Our guest this half hour is Dr. Mark Meekin. He's the principal research scientist at the Australian Institute of Marine Science. We're talking about whale sharks and a remarkable discovery uh, that Dr. Meekin and his team have just announced and made about uh, dietary habits of the world's biggest fish. It turns out they're omnivores. They eat both krill. We knew they ate uh, fish or krill. Uh, now we know they eat plants too. What's fascinating about this, I was when I was thinking about it, was just, what do you do with this information? Because obviously, you know, there there's changing climate, there's changing oceans. Uh, this is a, a a fish that moves around a lot. I guess it helps us understand a little bit about how to better protect them. I would imagine, but I don't know that to be true. <laughs> um, well, actually, Ben, it is true. Um, and and here's how. So now we know that whale sharks are. They're focusing on these, these fronts and wind rows, slip lines um, that contain, you know, both the, the krill and this algae, and they're swimming along them and, and, and essentially fairly indiscriminately eating everything that's there. That, that points a very important warning for us because marine, unlike, you know, unlike 100 years ago, 150 years ago, uh, marine debris now includes an awful lot of plastic. And particularly for these animals that are swimming through tropical and, and semi-tropical oceans where plastic debris uh, is a really major problem, you can, just, you can just think what pulling effectively, pushing a big plankton net through that little lot is going to get you. And very swiftly, it's going to get you a stomach full of plastic. And that's, that's a real problem for, for whale sharks, we think. These animals swimming along indiscriminately, you know, chowing things down, um, that's, that's going to be a real worry for them. So in this case, I mean, we know obviously plastic pollution is an issue too, but if we know what their eating habits are, is there a way that we can at least, I mean, obviously solving plastic pollution uh, in the oceans is a, is a huge issue these days that's talked about a lot, but is there anything else we've learned just about their own uh, their their own migration patterns, for instance, and what they're consuming that will help us better protect the species in in particular. Oh, look, uh, we've been doing an awful lot of tagging work um, with whale sharks over over the last twenty years, and so we know where our little population. Uh, it's about probably you know two or three thousand animals. 
um, actually goes. It, they head up out, you know, north from Australia, out up into Indonesia and, and through the Coral Triangle and back down to Ningaloo, you know, in about a yearly migration or every couple of years. So, so we do know, you know, where they're going and that's, that's essential information um, because if, if you want to make, you know, want to secure the future of wild sharks in a conservation sense, you have to know what's happening in the area that these animals actually inhabit. And in places like Indonesia, where in some places it's still legal to catch whale sharks, um, uh, you know, they're, they're a food source in some places. We have to know who to talk to and how to change that situation. But um, e even the issue with plastic and, and realising that they're vulnerable to plastic is important to us too, Ben. And, and for the simple reason that in many of these places, um, people don't connect. Um, in a lot of developing countries, people don't connect their throwing of plastic rubbish into rivers with with the uh, you know with the ultimate effect that it ends up in the oceans. Yet at the same time, um, places like the Philippines and Indonesia, whale sharks are very emblematic. They're they're an iconic species there too. And if you can actually connect people's local actions to the ultimate outcome that you might be affecting some of these iconic species that they love too then you're actually having, you've, you've got a mechanism where you can affect people's behaviour. And, and that is, so that's, a, you know, it's actually a critical thing. It's kind of a little bit of left field, but, but it's a critical thing to be able to connect people's behaviour to real conservation outcomes. Yeah, absolutely, and certainly being able to point to uh, to to a creature that is that is well. I know, obviously, in the Philippines, uh, whale sharks are are hugely loved, and, and therefore tying those two things together would probably be an effective approach to that. What do you do with this? With this, where do you go from here now? What do you do with this information now that you've found it out? What now that you found it out? Oh, this is just one part of. Um, this is just one part of a, a program that we've been going for twenty years now. We've been looking at the growth patterns of whale sharks. We've shown that males grow quicker than females, but get to smaller sizes. It's the females that are those really big 10 to 12 to 14 meter animals that you see out there. Um, we've been looking at um, the, the internal, um, internal organs of whale sharks in a program where basically now we can swim underneath them with an underwater ultrasound and actually look to see at the, the state of the internal organs. So we can actually try and do a health assessment on whale sharks as they swim by us, which is a pretty incredible thought. Um, we've, been, we've been looking at uh, whether the individuals at Ningaloo are, are local individuals, whether they hang around, how many years they're sighted. And as I said before, we've got a long-term tagging program that looks at where these animals go. And that has direct conservation outcomes for the, uh, for the species. Well, Dr. Mark Beacon, thank you so much for your time tonight. Um, again, whale sharks is a very popular conversation in my home, so you've added much to it tonight. Thank you so much. Oh, look, great to talk to you, Ben. And I couldn't recommend to your listeners more that if you ever get the chance, go swimming with a whale shark. It's a, just a fabulous experience. Absolutely. I agree. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Cheers, Ben. Cheers, Ben.